Matthew chapter 12. Begin reading at verse 14, and then read to the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 12, verses 14 to 50. Hear now the word of God. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick. He will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But the Pharisees heard it. And when, they heard, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out Demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. For how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first bind the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, Or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good measure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, you will give account for every careless word you speak. For by your words you will be justified... And by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. 
But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first state. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, help us. We do ask that your presence would abide with us tonight. And we know and rest in the promise that Jesus has given to us that he will not forsake us. And we need your help as we consider these words. They, many of them are, are difficult and hard and confusing and, and even frightening. And so I ask that you would give us clarity. I pray that you would help me to speak truth in love. And I pray that you would teach us all the faith and humility to receive not only the words, but the person of your Son, that we may be changed by him. We pray it all in his name. Amen. On Monday, I went to Presbytery. And yes, that is as fun as it sounds. Um, So I think probably most of you know we're uh, connected as a church to the Presbyterian Church in America. And uh, that group of churches is organized by regional groups called Presbyteries. And uh, so the leaders of our churches get together sometime, something around four times a year. And uh, and it's, it's strange for me because... Um, it's, it's a new group of people, and although I've been in Tallahassee for a number of months, this is only my, I guess, my, almost my third time uh, of being at Presbytery, and, and so I'm, I'm still getting to know uh, the guys that are, that are in this group, and as I climbed up the steps to go into the meeting room on Monday, I felt a, an old anxiety rise inside. And you know this anxiety. It's, it's the anxiety of, of walking onto the playground the first day of school. Uh, it's the anxiety of, of walking into the school cafeteria and, and wondering where you're going to sit. 
Uh, it's the anxiety of walking on the campus the first day of the semester as a freshman. It, it's an anxiety that comes from that question, will I belong? Will I fit somewhere? Uh, will I find an acceptance within some group of people. And then anxiety is an ancient question. It's a question that, that has roots all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when God sends Adam and Eve out of the home that he had made for them, the garden. And, and he creates a distance. He displaces them from that place where they had lived in harmony with him and with his creation. And that displacement created separation not only between God, but among uh, God's creation, among us as human beings. And so we live with that question and the struggle to belong. And of course, as Christians, we believe that Jesus came to deal with that problem. That he came to create the possibility of once again belonging to God. Of once again being welcomed into his presence. Of being included in his family. Those people that he loves. And that's why Jesus ends the text... <laughs> that we read the way he does. He takes these labels of family, and, and especially in the ancient culture, the family was, was the ultimate place of belonging, and he takes those labels and he gives it to the people around him, to those who he says do the will of his Father who are in heaven, who is in heaven. So he, he, is, he is gathering a family for God. But I think the challenge of this text is that as Jesus talks about those who belong, he also talks about those who don't. He talks about those who are included, but he also talks about those who are excluded. He, he draws a line, and he does this throughout the story that Matthew is telling. He draws a line... And it is a line that says who's in and who's out. And that is a hard thing to consider, isn't it? So I want us to consider this line tonight. I want to consider this line that Jesus draws and the two sides of it, of those who are, who are included and welcomed into God and, his, and God's people, his family, and, and those who aren't. The, the side of the line that's inclusion and the side of the line that's exclusion. And because it's a better rhetorical strategy to start negative and go positive, uh, I'm going to start with the negative side. And we're going to start by talking about who's out. As Jesus draws the line here, who is on the wrong side of the line? There's, if you're paying attention to the story in Matthew, you'll notice a tension has been developing. 
And it's a tension between Jesus and the predominant cultural and religious leaders of his day. And that that tension reaches a breaking point in verse 14. And it says that these leaders have heard enough, and they've decided that Jesus is dangerous, and they begin to plot to kill him. And of course, that plot leads to the execution of Jesus on the cross. But we need to stop and ask why that friction exists. Why is there this conflict and competition between Jesus and these teachers, these leaders? And we need to ask it because Jesus and and these people, most notably the Pharisees, had a lot in common. They shared a basic view of the world. They, They understood that the world had rejected and rebelled against God. That in Adam and Eve, humanity had rebelled against God and His gracious rule. And so that world was given over to other authorities. It was given over to slavery. It was given to authorities, both human and spiritual, which we talk about here, who were in opposition, who are in opposition to God and to His will for His creation. And because humanity rebelled and rejected God, they were given over to these authorities, and they are enslaved to these authorities. Jesus and the Pharisees both accepted that truth. They also accepted the truth that God had promised to send a rescuer. That God had promised in passages like Matthew quotes from (laughs) Isaiah to send an individual, a king, a messiah, to rescue God's people from these powers, from these authorities that were in rebellion against God and wanted to harm his people. He was going to send someone to rescue them. And so Jesus and the Pharisees both had that view as well. And in fact, if you'll notice, the Pharisees, they do not question the reality of what Jesus is doing. They're not saying, oh, what you're doing is just a magic trick. They don't say, no, you're not really casting out demons and you're not really healing people, right? They accept that that is happening. So what's the difference? Where's the rub between Jesus and the Pharisees? Well, it's a difference in method. The Pharisees were convinced that the method of God to send his rescuer was them. They were convinced that if they could be pure enough and if that they could help their community to be pure enough, God would finally be happy with them and would send the Messiah. And this is why they had so much trouble with Jesus because he didn't fit their method. And it's why they accused him of of actually casting out demons by demonic power. Because he didn't didn't fit their idea of how the kingdom of God should come. And Jesus, of course, says that what they have said is nonsense. That nobody ever wins a, a war by friendly fire. And he says, no, it is not by the power of of Satan, the power of demonic powers, that I cast out these other demonic powers. The problem is that 
my method is different than yours. You see, Jesus understood that the method of God's rescue was not them, but him. That it was not their obedience that led God to send a rescuer. It was God's grace that led him to give his son to rescue people from slavery to sin and death and Satan. This is why the Spirit is so important in this passage. You see in verse 18, this quote from Isaiah says, this, this rescuer that God is sending, is it because of obedience? No, it's because God chooses to keep His promise and put His Spirit on that leader. And then later in the passage, Jesus talks about how he, His work is by the Spirit. In verse 28, He says, If I'm casting out demons by the Spirit, then the kingdom of God is here. And then He comes to the point of exclusion. In verses 31 and 32, he comes to that point that defines who is out. And who is it? Is it those who make a mistake here and there? Or is it those who reject the Spirit, right? It's those who oppose and question the work of the Spirit. Jesus is saying God's grace has been poured out in him by God sending him and putting the Spirit on him that enables him to do these incredible works. And that is an expression of the choice of God to keep his promises, not the reaction of God to the obedience and faithfulness of the Pharisees. And Jesus says the signs are here. All of these miracles, all of these uh, demons being cast out, all of them are demonstrations that Jesus is the gift of God's Spirit to His people. They are demonstrations that God's kingdom has arrived on earth. And the inability to recognize that comes from a focus on human ability rather than divine ability. The reasons that they, the Pharisees could not see and understand what Jesus was doing is because they were focused on themselves. They were focused on what they could accomplish rather than what God was accomplishing in His Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus says one more sign will be given that will be the sign of Jonah, that just as Jonah entered the fish and was there three days and three nights, and God brought him out, that Jesus would enter the grave and would be there three days and three nights, and God would raise him up as a final and ultimate demonstration that Jesus was the promised rescuer. And the reason that the Pharisees couldn't see, the reason that we sometimes struggle to see, is because... Our eyes are turned inward to our ability rather than outward towards God's ability displayed in Jesus Christ. 
And understand that the harsh words that Jesus said, they're, they're difficult to receive. But understand that these don't come from a delight in making people feel bad and seeing people get judged by God. These words are an intervention with people who are addicts, with people who are addicted to themselves, people who are addicted to their ways of getting to God and the life that comes from Him. This is an intervention. As Jesus sits down with the Pharisees and says, can't you see the destruction that you're bringing on yourself and on the people around you because you're addicted to your own ability? And, And the sad truth for us, I think, is that we're all born addicts. We're all born crack babies. We're born in sin, which means we're born with an addiction to ourselves. And we need the gracious intervention of Jesus to lead us to recovery. One way I know that we are addicted to ourselves is the way that we react to verse 32. Right? This is the infamous unpardonable sin, right? I remember growing up in the church scared to death that I had somehow accidentally committed the unpardonable sin and was outside of the reach of God's grace. And that reveals the way that we, I think, react to this teaching, is we react to it and then turn inward. And we start to think, all right, you know, did I, did I, did I do well enough this week? Oh, I, I was angry at my friend on Tuesday, and I don't know if I've reconciled that. And, and oh, I only got three quiet times in this week. And, and, and we start, we go inward and introspective. But that's not the direction of this passage, is it? Jesus is saying the problem with the Pharisees is that they turn inward. And the direction of Jesus' words in this passage are to draw us outward. What is the impardonable sin? It is an inability to see God's grace at work in Jesus Christ. It is an ability inability to acknowledge that God's Spirit was poured out on him and that he brought God's kingdom into this world. It is not slipping up morally. It is not failing to do enough religious activity. It it is to turn our eyes inward and be so focused on our ability that we miss the glorious ability of Jesus to rescue us from ourselves. One of the, some of the best advice I've ever gotten spiritually comes from a 19th century Scottish pastor named Robert Murray McShane. And he was talking about how in our tradition, Scottish Presbyterians, 
there is a tendency to introspection. And his advice was, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. That's what Jesus is calling us to here. He is saying, yes, you are broken, you are sinful, you are needy, but you cannot stay there. You have to let that need lift your eyes to the cross and to the empty tomb and to the promise of a rescuer that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. For every look at yourself, take a thousand looks at Jesus, at the gospel. Now, there's still a problem here. Because Jesus does make a very strong and exclusive claim here. And it's the kind of exclusivity that makes PBS kids nervous. Alright? For parents and kids in the room. Or it's the kind of exclusivity that makes your professor of sociology nervous. To claim that there is one way, there is one truth. Our culture longs for inclusivity, and rightly so, is concerned about exclusivity because, frankly, it has led to a lot of violence and injustice in our world. But you need to understand, every perspective and every community is going to be exclusive at some point. So a dominant message in our culture is that all religions are equal. All religions are acceptable. Right? Unless those religions want to proselytize. Unless those religions want to persuade others to join them. And then that's not okay. Right? That, that's the point of exclusivity. That your religion can be what it is until your religion tells you to tell me what to do. <laughs> right? That your religion can stay the same, only it can't. It has to change in order to fit my perspective. So every approach to life, every community is exclusive at some point. And I want you to see, as we finish, the inclusivity of Jesus. That yes, Jesus makes a strong statement of exclusivity of who is out, but he also makes an incredible statement about who is in. Read again verses 19 to 21. This is a passage from Isaiah. Matthew is explaining Jesus' ministry with it. He says, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Who is in, in the kingdom of God, in the family of God? Well, it's those who are normally out, right? The, the Gentiles play a prominent role here in this passage. Um, and Matthew, as he translates the word from Hebrew to Greek, he makes it really clear that what Isaiah was talking about 
was the Gentiles. And remember, these Pharisees and these religious leaders, their goal was to be pure. That they had to separate themselves from every element of sin. And the worst element of sin were those who were not ethnically, ethnically Jewish. And so they had created as much separation between themselves and Gentile people as possible. And Matthew says, that's who Jesus came for. The people that you want to exclude, Jesus came to include. And that's why he chooses these models he does. He says, one greater than Jonah, one greater than Solomon is here. What links Jonah and Solomon? What little details that Jesus mentions links Jonah and Solomon? It's Gentiles. After Jonah was taken out of the fish, where does he go? Does he go to Jewish people? No, he goes to Nineveh, the Assyrians. They were as bad as it gets. And he goes with God's message and they repent and are forgiven. And Solomon in all of his glory, who comes and acknowledges and sees that and worships God because of it? It's the dirty Gentile queen. Matthew is helping us to see that Jesus came to gather those who are normally excluded, those who are unacceptable to human culture. Jesus has come to make acceptable. And so, yes, Jesus does draw a line. But it is a line that opens the kingdom of heaven and the benefits of the kingdom of heaven and the life of of the kingdom of heaven to those who no one would ever imagine that God could love. And that's you, and that's me. And that is the good news of the gospel, is that we are the broken reed. We are the candle that because of sin is about to go out. And Jesus intrudes with his grace and rescues us. I have a friend whose family has season tickets to the Pittsburgh Steelers. And he invited me to come with him a few years ago to a Monday night game uh, between the Steelers and the Ravens, a great game. And so I drove uh, from Ohio to Pittsburgh, and we met him at his parents' house. And his parents lived in a, a pretty distant suburb from the city, pretty far outside the city. And, and I met him there, and we began to drive into Pittsburgh. And I, at that point, did not like Pittsburgh as a city because the traffic was crazy. It was getting dark. It was rush hour. There was construction everywhere. It was ugly. And we kept driving. It kept getting darker. And then we entered a tunnel. And the tunnel didn't improve my opinion of the city of Pittsburgh. It was gray and scary. Cars were flying everywhere and, and people were honking their horns. But then we got to the end of the tunnel and we came out of it and there was this gorgeous picture in front of me. And it had gotten completely dark and Pittsburgh was lit up. And if you've ever gone through that tunnel or come into Pittsburgh at night, you know it is a gorgeous, beautiful 
picture. It's a, it's a pretty city. That's what it's like to come to Jesus. Is we come and we hear these harsh words. These narrow words of, if you are not with me, you are against me. It's like that tunnel. But where does the tunnel lead us? It leads us to a beautiful, expansive picture of belonging. That yes, we come to Jesus and He says, I am the way. But who is He the way for? It is those who no one else will accept. It is those who have been rejected. It is those who are excluded from cultures and societies and relationships. Jesus' narrowness leads him to an ability to welcome those who do not deserve to be welcomed. We find with him in his narrowness a grace. The grace that led him to the cross to take our sins. Grace that overcame death with life. And a grace that welcomes us as brothers and sisters of Jesus the King. Sons and daughters of God. So I was sitting in Presbytery with all of my social anxiety. And a man got up to talk about uh, his work as a church planter in Japan. Uh, this man has been in Japan for over 20 years uh, planting churches. And when you see some like one that, someone like that uh, get up, you expect him to talk about the impressive <laughs> accomplishments of his church planting teams and all of the people who have come to Christ through them and all the churches that have been started because of them. But he stood up and he prayed and he looked at us and he quoted an old gospel song that I grew up singing. He says, I love to tell the story for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. He stood up and he took us to the gospel and all my social anxiety went away. Because he reminded me that my belonging does not depend on how other people react to me. My belonging does not depend on whether I am accepted by the men of Presbytery or not. My belonging depends on Jesus, on the one who cast out the demons, the one who went to the cross, the one who rose from the dead the one who reigns from heaven even now. My belonging rests on that. Will, will you come to him and find that God welcomes you as his son, as his daughter? Let's pray.